0: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
0: Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com.
1: Right now, though, let us move to the big story of the day, which is China-U.S. trade relations and the apparent breakdown of talks at the last minute that basically prompted President Trump to increase tariffs on Chinese goods. Joining us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, Patrick Shivanik. He is Managing Director and Chief Strategist at Silvercrest Asset Management. So, uh, Patrick, I want to start with what happened here, because it seemed like markets were pricing in a deal would get done in the near term, all of a sudden, everything seemed to fall apart, and it seemed kind of rapid. Is that a correct read on the situation?
2: Yes, markets were pricing in that there would be a deal. Um, and uh, starting on Sunday, when President Trump tweeted that uh, tariffs were on the table for Friday, um, things start you know, a very different picture started to get priced in. Um, the, the The word from the administration is that the Chinese uh, stepped back from a number of um, a number of commitments that they made. The word from china is that that was done by Xi jinping um what kind of leverage they felt they had i mean i think both sides feel that they have the upper hand um the u.s you know is just coming off of 3.2 percent gdp growth in the first quarter i think some in the trump administration feel that the u.s is fairly impervious to to the damage that terrorists would do and i think the chinese feel that they're they've kind of got their economy back under control and um with stimulus and that, uh, you know, they have the upper hand. So you've got two sides that feel that they have the upper hand and neither wants to give, and they're going to test out their assumptions.
0: So Patrick, just looking at it from the perspective of corporate America, it seems that corporate America was, could deal with 10% tariffs on a limited number of goods, but now we're talking much higher tariffs on more goods.
2: How do you think corporate America is going to deal with these higher tariffs? Yes. Well, the first thing, I mean, we saw that in the fourth quarter, um, where, uh, you know, a number of companies in their earnings projections said precisely that, that 10% was something they could handle and avoid, 25% was much more difficult. um, And it weighed down on their earnings projections. And that, in turn, is what helped contribute to the sell-off in the fourth quarter. Um, And it wasn't really driven by trade headlines, per se. It was driven by earnings calls that said, this is looking not very encouraging. And I think we're back to that, um, and that will be the mechanism through which you know we'll feel the first tangible impact. Because these tariffs actually don't go into effect on goods in transit, so it'll be about a month before we actually start to feel an economic impact from them.
1: One thing that I find really interesting is the more people who I speak to who manage money, the more diverse views I get in terms of what's priced into the current market, (laughs) with some people saying uh, that the downside risk is limited because really the markets have rallied in response to the Fed being on hold, and other people saying that the markets could tank uh, if some sort of trade agreement is not reached and these tariffs remain in place. And I'm just wondering, where do you stand on that?
2: So I think it's useful to step back a little bit from just the exclusive issue of U.S.-China Trade tensions. Um, you know where is the U.S. economy? So, like I said, 3.2 percent growth in in the first quarter. Um, decent earnings season, but I think that masked a number of vulnerabilities. You know, the the actual domestic drivers of the U.S. economy slowed to 1.5 percent in the first quarter. A lot of the additional growth came from uh, inventory buildup and came from uh, slowdown in imports. Uh, in in corporate earnings, um, yes, they're up two percent year on year. But in fact, and they rebounded a bit uh, from a, a dismal fourth quarter. But uh, that was led primarily by finance and healthcare. And uh, eight out of eleven sectors in the S and P five hundred are actually were actually declined further um, in Q one. And uh, eight out, a different eight out of the 11 uh, are down year-on-year year in terms of quarterly earnings. So there's some softness there um, that I think that the market has focused on the headlines. Um, I'm not saying recession imminent. I'm not saying – I'm saying that the slowdown and some of the vulnerabilities are um, more serious than maybe some of the headline numbers suggest.
0: So, Patrick, we earlier in the show here, we had uh, Michael McKee, Bloomberg's uh, uh, economics editor on, and he kind of explained that you know tariffs are effectively a, a tax on consumers to some degree. What is your view of the consumer in this scenario, in this environment that may be developing for the remainder
2: of the year? So we are in a low inflation environment. Um, you know, it, inflation really went to a crawl in the first quarter, um, but it started to tick up again. Uh, I think that's one of the immediate concerns of any tariff uh, is the pass-along cost. And uh, you know so it's a fairly friendly environment for that but um, but yes they are attacks on consumers i mean the the question from a strategic point of view is you know is it worth taking some pain now to get some gain and the, and that gets then into the question of is this an effective is this effective leverage against china i think multinational coordinated multinational Uh, pressure on China would be much more effective and much harder for China to retaliate effectively against than the go-it-alone bilateral tariffs that we're imposing. But, you know, we'll find out.
1: So whose economy stands to suffer more from the imposition of these tariffs, the U.S. or China?
2: So I think the U.S. is more vulnerable than, like I said, the headline numbers would suggest. Um, And and I think we saw that in the market response now, but also in the fourth quarter to some of those earnings projections and the hit that would that companies would take from tariffs. China, China has economic problems. I don't think that they stem primarily from trade pressure from the United States. I think they would exist with or without a trade war from the United States. And actually, even if there was an agreement, they'd still have big problems to deal with. I do think that the trade war and trade tensions have focused attention on some of those vulnerabilities in a way that maybe the Chinese would like to avoid.
0: So just given the backdrop that we have over the last few days about these uh, rising trade tensions, what is your view of the equity markets right here? We've pulled back, I guess, about 3% this week, roughly, uh, on this news. What are you thinking going
2: forward here, given this backdrop that seems to be developing? So we've seen a solid rebound this year from the sell-off um one of those issues one of those issues which was the fed raising rates is now off the table that drove that um the other which was prospect of a trade war um is sort of back on the table um so you know i i think that given the vulnerabilities that i mentioned given the fact that the economy was slowing and that corporate earnings were soft there was you know the prospect and i wrote about it at the beginning of the week um in my monthly note Uh, of a correction in the market. Um, I don't see a recession imminent. I look at the recession leading indicators. Some of them maybe are yellow, um, but most of them are green. Okay, so you got none. So I'm gonna keep my eye on that. Okay, very good. Uh, Patrick Schravanek, thank you very much.
0: Patrick's a managing director and chief strategist at Silvercrest Asset Management. Joining us live here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Well, Lisa, all this talk about tariffs reminds me that despite all my years of business education, I need a refresher on actually how tariffs work, who pays them, who gets the money. Uh, fortunately for us, uh, Michael McKee is with us, Michael's international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg News. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So when 25% tariffs go on a gajillion dollars worth of goods coming in from China, where does that money go, Michael? Do we? Does the Treasury just all of a sudden
3: get richer? <laughs> the Treasury does get richer. It's a question of who pays it. Uh, in general, the tariffs are applied when uh, goods arrive in a port, define that however you want, airport or, or uh, seaport. And then uh, most of them are purchased by middlemen, by importers, which uh, who handle the paperwork and deal with uh, the uh, transaction. And then it goes on to the end user. And the importers... Uh, Pay the tariff, then they either raise their prices to the final user, or they absorb it in their margins. And uh, the big question for all companies now is, you know, how much more can you uh, uh, keep in your margins, and what do you have to pass pass along? Uh, and then that money is collected by the customs uh, agency, the customs bureau, and then it goes into the general treasury revenues. And you can see in uh, the figures, big spike since we started this whole round of terror. You go back to the washing machines in February of last year.
1: So so this is how it works technically. And then we have the discussion of who is benefiting from this, because President Trump tweeting today that it will uh, be money that goes into the coffers of the United States that can support farmers. Can you walk us through how that actually would work?
3: (laughs) That's two different things. It goes into the coffers of the United States. Yes, it was a question of who pays for it. It's basically a tax on somebody along the way it could be the middleman who imported this stuff it could be the company or the company can pass that along to american consumers and as tariffs go up and up it ends up in the consumer uh, one on the consumer one way or another so we've paid that tax into the treasury they have more money now we have a much bigger deficit. So is there really extra money? (laughs) We've got to fill this hole uh, that has been created. But even if you have it, uh, can they spend it on farmers? That's a really open question because uh, the president proposes, but Congress disposes, as the saying goes, and they have to (laughs) approve the spending. They have to appropriate the money. So the president can't just spend it as he wishes. Uh, to go on from there and uh, give you probably more information than you want to know, uh, there is there are problems with the U.S. food aid uh, situation that have been uh, there for years, and so this has been a controversy for years. First, uh, our foreign uh, uh, money, a uh, foreign aid in food, the law requires it be. U.S. grown and processed food that is then shipped overseas and foreign aid relief agencies say that doesn't help because it takes a very long time. Bureaucracy and red tape add to the cost. They'd rather we just give them cash so they can go to someplace close to Yemen and buy the food that is necessary. And the other is the Jones Act. You heard about that in connection with Puerto Rico. All food aid from the United States has to be carried on U.S.-flagged ships, which A, raises the cost about 30 percent, and B, uh, there aren't always enough ships available. And so it slows the whole process down. So there are bureaucratic impediments to making it work, even if Congress agreed to spend the money. And we should note that the president's fiscal year 2020 budget cut food aid assistance in half. So... I'm not sure where, why he decided. So we're not sure how the tweets kind of agree with actual, with actual, yeah. So
0: generally speaking, just stepping back, you know, putting your uh, economics hat on are, did tariffs, what's generally the overall impact of
3: tariffs in general? There's a short-term boost to the industries that are protected by tariffs, and we saw that with the metals tariffs, the steel tariffs. The steel industry has has done well. Uh, users down the line, especially small shops that have to pay more for uh, their steel, have been suffering. We're also seeing now the jobs uh, there were jobs added in the steel industry, but that's starting to roll over, and some of them are starting to to cut workers. So there isn't a, necessarily a long-term benefit there, and there is a a problem. Uh, with the secondary user, the, the user down the line, it also increases inflation. The New York Fed did a study of uh, the tariffs in 2018 and found it increased the CPI by about uh, three tenths of a percentage point. So we are seeing some inflation uh, aspects. Now, That's the really Fed, interesting. The Fed probably wants that at this point, uh, although they might call it transitory. <laughs>
1: Well, although it could mask underlying weakness, right? I mean, that that basically wouldn't be necessarily the kind of inflation that they would want to see uh, and that would increase consumers' power. Sort of interesting to me, uh, and just real quick, we were speaking with Senator Rick Scott on Bloomberg Television earlier this morning, and he was saying that he would like to see the money that the Treasury Department collects from tariffs funneled back out in the term, basically in the form of subsidies for farmers. Is
3: this a popular line here? Well, the president has a subsidy program, which they put into place last year, $12 billion. They're trying to do it again this year. Yeah. Uh, They haven't gotten it through yet, but they're they're working on it. And, uh, you know, I suppose you could say it gets funneled back into it, but money is fungible. It's just more money into the Treasury. Uh, As I said, we have a big deficit. They got to fund it somehow.
1: Yeah, maybe this is this is how it's gonna, gonna happen. Mike McKee, International Economics and Policy Correspondent for Bloomberg, thank you so much for being with us. stands to lose the most from the escalating trade tensions? Some investors, including Vanguard Asset Management, are pinpointing the emerging markets complex. And here joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Dr. Andy Cooper. He is founder and chief executive officer of Leapfrog Investments. He is based on an airplane. Luckily, we actually have him on land today. Uh, so Andy, I'd love to get your sense of whether you would agree with this idea that escalating trade tensions will disproportionately hit emerging markets debt.
4: So we think that it's possible that there will be short-term ructions, but the fundamental secular story is that these emerging markets are growing rapidly based on 4 billion people rising out of low income into the middle class. They've got new technologies like mobile uh, and uh, are constantly accessing things they couldn't access before, like healthcare or financial tools for a hundredth of the cost that they once could. So the opportunity for these folks to access what they need to really rise is huge and businesses that are serving them are going to do incredibly well so in the next 10 years there will be ups and downs for the markets but fundamentally that opportunity set is going to be incredibly strong so Andy I know at leapfrog uh, you guys focus on impact investing kind of describe what that is So impact investing is where you invest to generate both a strong commercial return and a positive social outcome. So uh, lower income people, for example, getting health care or getting financial tools like insurance or savings or pensions. The basic proposition is that you can have profit with purpose. You can make money and you can do good at the same time. And that's because you focus on areas where customers are served incredibly well and help to rise.
1: I'm going to get existential here. What does it mean to do good?
4: <laughs> I think uh, since I trained in philosophy, I could give you a very long answer to that. <laughs> no, it's but okay. The we don't short answer <laughs> <laughs> is that uh, essentially uh, our simple view is that people who are low income have just as much agency, just as much capacity to rise over time as anyone else, as long as they get the essential services they need. Uh, and we believe that when people get quality healthcare, which is measurable, get quality insurance, which is measurable by hard ratios like claims ratios, uh, they are able to rise and then you're doing good.
1: Okay, so this is more from a uh, sort of uh, economic and sort of uh, income level point of view that you focus on more than, say, environmental or uh, corporate governance.
4: Yes, although we also take a very strong view on ESG and governance, we think, is a key element in getting alpha in these markets. So we found that well-governed companies are actually able to extract a premium on exit. And as a result, when we've sold companies at LeapFrog to the likes of Swiss Re or Prudential PLC or Standard Chartered or Fidelity, we believe those companies have been willing to pay a premium for well-governed high-growth companies.
0: So Andy, what are some of the markets in which LeapFrog has made investments recently?
4: So we're very strong on India, Kenya, Nigeria, Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam we think all of these markets are growing exceptionally rapidly driven by these secular trends also financial services and healthcare care are often growing at double the rate of the economy so if you as a private equity player find a really good company that's just growing slightly above average you can be getting to 20 or 30 percent growth rates in your revenue per year
1: when we started talking, you were talking long term, and you were saying you see the opportunity long term, there might be bumps along the way. And I, and I have to wonder you know, how that plays into your role as a private equity investor versus public equity or public debt, uh, where a lot of money has flowed into emerging markets. How do you view that?
4: One of the exciting things about being a private equity investor is that you can hold assets for different lengths of time. And so when people are down on emerging markets, you can buy at lower prices. And when people are up on emerging markets, you can sell at higher prices. So uh, private equity gives you a distinct competitive advantage in these markets and also allows you to form a really deep relationship with the companies and their leadership so that you can understand the dynamics in the market. And one of the things we found has been crucial in generating Alpha is actually having great local and specialist talent, people who are MD, PhDs, or actuaries focused on healthcare or insurance that are able to really see what these companies need and engage very intensively with them.
0: Real quickly, 10 10 seconds, how are the returns?
4: Well, we think Profit with Purpose generates outsized returns. We think we have a lot of evidence for that. And we think that we announced a $700 million new fund for emerging markets today that had 40 in institutional investors in Congratulations. it. And the fact that that was achieved and that so many folks diligenced the 10-year history of LeapFrog yep. really shows that you can generate outsized returns. Uh, and we think the evidence is in that the markets are going to shift. Larry Fink's yep. been saying this recently. have heard that about purpose and profit and we think the time of profit with purpose has really come. Dr. Andy Cooper, thank you so much. Founder and CEO of LeapFrog
0: Investments talking to us about impact investments, uh, investing from a private equity perspective. Bloomberg Markets is brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network, the RIA broker-dealer that's won the J.D. Power Award for highest independent advisor satisfaction among financial investment firms five times in a row. Visit Commonwealth.com. Well, we are still awaiting the opening of Uber. By 11.45, I certainly expected this thing to be trading. Indications here are 42.43 versus the IPO price of 45. So not a good indicated opening for this highly anticipated IPO. Uh, To get more details, we welcome our good friend Shira Oviday, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Shira, what do you make of this?
5: Yeah, it's obviously not good to break below the IPO price. Obviously, the thing that I wonder is if it's trades below the IPO price, does that mean something about doubts about Uber specifically or is it today as a down market, right? People are really anxious about this China, um, renewed China trade uh Kerfuffle, And is that the thing that's really driving down Uber shares?
1: There are a lot of questions here, right? Which is, you know, how much is this a market story? How much is this a ride-sharing services story, right? Because we have other IPOs that did better. Uh, how much is this a money-losing story? Because Uber really is a pretty late-stage company to be going public. And they're burning through cash faster, at least in the past 12 months, than any other IPO ever in history, according to at least uh, Renaissance capital Capital, a research company. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, what do you think?
5: Yeah, so Uber is this weird, it is basically emblematic of uh, technology companies that started in the last 10 years, that it is now going public, so debuting on the stock market, but it's already very large and mature, $50 billion in kind of transaction value on Uber's platform in the last year. And also, highly unprofitable three billion dollars of operating losses which is a staggering number and it's it's core business just has opened
0: kind of, uh just opened at 42 and change here 42
5: and change yeah okay. 42 and change wow that is
1: compared to an ipo I, price right. of 45 dollars, yep. which was on the low range which was tried to be which was trying to be a concession to investors to say hey guys we're gonna throw you a bone well they did not
5: get thrown a bone yep. yeah and, and let me just point out that um Basically, everyone, every new investor who bought Uber stock in the last, since December 2015, apart from SoftBank, is now underwater on their investment. Every single new shareholder, including people who bought in the IPO.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was just going to go to that point. I think, you know, as people try to think about longer, what, what does this mean for the tech market, for the IPO market? I think one of the things we can take away is that clearly, certainly for these two ride sharing companies and maybe for some others. The valuation differential between a private market and what the public market, it's very stark here, i.e. the public market at a discount to the latest private market round, That's got to be disconcerting for the, the financiers on Sand Hill Road in uh, Silicon Valley.
5: Yeah, I would think so. Although there's, there's been some discrepancy, right? Lyft, even though they've traded down as a public company, it's still, the share price is still higher than a shares that the company sold privately in in the last private stock sale about a year ago. So, you know, that's still a gain for those venture capital investors and people who bought early did very well and, are, and if they held on are still doing very well. So, you know, it's a little bit of a of a mixed bag, but yeah, you, look, if you're funding, trying to fund the next Uber and the next Lyft, you want these newly public private companies to do well. You don't want them to seem like failures, because that makes it harder to sell your investors. Um, on billion dollars of investments in in the next companies.
1: Although, so Lyft shares are currently priced still above where uh, it was valued at its last private round of funding. Not the same with Uber. Uber actually priced below that level to start with, and now shares are trading down. And I just have to wonder whether the incredible amount of money that's flooded into private Capital markets has warped, frankly, the potential pop that we can see from these IPOs because, frankly, a lot of the value has already been sucked out or value read, you know, gains. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I think that's a that's a very fair question. And and to be fair, it's a question that people have been asking for many years whether these companies as they stay private significantly longer. Again, Uber is a 10-year-old company. This is not a baby company. As those tech companies stay private longer, does all of the value get sucked up by, you know, a small number of Silicon Valley venture firms or increasingly you know, these sort of global funds like SoftBank or the Saudi government um, investment fund.
0: It's interesting. I bet you one group who's breathing a sigh of relief this morning are the JP Morgan bankers who led the Lyft IPOC. They're probably saying, see, this isn't so easy, you know, and uh, yes, our stock is trading down, but look at the big brother Uber. It's also having some Do problems. Do you really
1: think that that's the response? Oh, I,
0: absolutely. Oh, I absolutely know the JP Morgan. <laughs> Banker
1: thinking. Yeah. Yes,
0: exactly. So, but it's really goes to, it's, it's, it's interesting. I wonder if there's been a lot of press, certainly over time, but really over the last couple of weeks, when, you know, people are saying, gee, all these um, white-collar workers at Uber and, and and Lyft are making gajillions of dollars on an IPO, but yet the drivers, the people on the backs that really drive this company, no, no pun intended, they're working for essentially minimum wage. I wonder if that bad press kind of weighed in on some of the you know, psyche of some of these IPO investors.
5: Yeah, I don't, it's hard to know. I, you know, I don't have a really good sense of the the investor sentiment, if there is kind of a common investor sentiment. But yeah, look, Uber and Lyft, they are highly reliant on the, um, you know, maintaining a a unique economic relationship with these drivers that Uber and Lyft need to pay them enough that they keep driving, but not so much that Uber and Lyft have to give away all of the economics from a from a ride to those drivers. So it's it's a really difficult balance, a tightrope to walk. And you've seen um, drivers not necessarily happy with their wages, and there there were some uh, sort of strikes and and such this week. So uh, $42, this is not the way that Uber wanted this
1: morning on the New even. York Stock Exchange to go. That, according to Eric Newcomer, uh, definitely a disappointing day as we watch the shares uh, scroll across the New York Stock Exchange. Shira, do you expect this to dampen the IPO calendar later in the year?
5: Yeah, that is that is definitely something I wonder if um, – If now Uber and Lyft, assuming they stay below their IPO price, that's not great news for Postmates, for Slack, for uh, Peloton, for Airbnb, other companies that are at various stages of the, um, the listing pipeline. Shura Oviday, thank you so much. It's been, I know, a busy period of time for you, and you've written some tremendous columns. Shura
1: Ovide, technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Uber shares did open $42 below the $45 IPO price. Lyft shares are at session lows as well. Big question is... Is this idiosyncratic to the ride-hailing service industry, or is this something more significant about IPOs today in 2019?
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.